scripture this morning is Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray real quick. Father, I praise you for uh, the beautiful redemption we have in Jesus, that he paid it all, all of our sin, all of our constant running to things other than you for our needs and our satisfaction. I pray, Father, that you would uh, draw us closer to him as he shows us how to pray this morning. I pray that you would align our hearts with yours and that asking you for stuff would be uh, a, a comfort would grow our trust, would shape our hearts, would shape our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Uh, I didn't announce it last week because I was waiting to see if he would stick with us, but Camille and I welcomed a new foster son into our home. His name's DeMarco. Many of you might have met him. And uh, we get to uh, introduce yourself uh, if you haven't met him yet, but we, we, get to, we were watching a movie the other week. We were watching Karate Kid, which is on Amazon Prime, if you have that now. Uh, classic, original Karate Kid. Uh, none of that Kung Fu, Jackie Chan stuff. And the original Karate Kid movie, uh, watching that for the first time, my dad educated me when I was little in watching that movie. It was just very profound uh, and on, on a lot of different levels, if you think about what youth movies are like now. But I'm sure you've seen it, or if you haven't, go watch it. But this kid keeps getting beat up by the bullies, and so Mr. Miyagi promises to teach him karate. And the first day of training comes, and there's all these old rusty cars, and he, show, he gives them a bucket and two sponges, and he shows them how to wax on, wax off. And then he brings them in to the back patio where he's got this oriental oasis, Mr. Miyagi does, and he, he shows them how to sand the deck, do, do, the, do these motions. And then he paints the fence, and he gets done, and he's like, did you do the outside of the fence? There's these really specific motions that, that poor little Ralph Macchio has to do. And right at the end, he gets furious with Mr. Miyagi, said, you're supposed to teach me karate, and here I am just doing all your grunt work, working like a slave. And so what Mr. Miyagi does as he starts throwing, throwing jabs. I don't know karate. I'm not going to try to imitate it. He starts throwing jabs at Ralph Macchio, and without even thinking, Ralph Macchio starts, wax on, paint the fence. He starts blocking all these things, all, everything that he does that Mr. Miyagi throws at him. And I recap that movie because these repetition, uh, these repetitious movements that Mr. Miyagi had Ralph Macchio do shaped his instincts, shaped what came naturally to him. And that's how I want us to think about the Lord's Prayer, is that the Lord's Prayer shapes our hearts and shapes our instincts. And so when Jesus says, pray then like this, he's giving us uh, a training regimen, if you will, 
uh, a way to, to, to shape our hearts and shape our world primarily so that we, our hearts trust God. And so when we read this, it's so simple. It's been perhaps misused in the past in different areas of, of church culture where it's just this rote memorization that we just say without thinking about it. But there's a reason why our King and Savior says pray then like this. And my hope today is that we would see prayer shaping our hearts to trust God and also that it's incredibly powerful and it shapes our world. One of the, the, the crazy things about Jesus' call on our life is that he doesn't say, wait until you get it right. Wait until your heart is okay to start obeying me. But he, he calls us to deal with our heart issues in movement, in, in action. We looked at that for a while where he would say, he would give us instructions to deal with our heart. Like it's not enough just to not murder someone. You have to deal with anger. And then he gives us a way to deal with anger and obedience by reconciling. This is kind of what he does with trust in the Lord's Prayer. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we pray in God's way, it shapes our hearts, just like Ralph Macchio's instincts. All of our discussion in the Sermon on the Mount so far has been within the framework of human flourishing. So when we look at Jesus' instructions, we're understanding them in in he being God in the flesh, calling us to flourish as humans. So when he says pray like this, he's not trying to be a bully or be really strict and authoritarian, though he, of course, has the authority as God, but it's because this is how we flourish. Jesus is saying that we flourish through trusting God, and prayer is a central element to trust God. And if you're sitting here today, and you can be honest with yourself, I, I don't trust God that much. Or I want to trust God, but my heart would tell otherwise because I stay up all night anxious about things. Then we see that prayer is one of the ways that we get more trust. We show up to the invitation to trust God and let him do the work through the Holy Spirit. The central element to trusting God, uh, the foundation, if you will, we talked about this a lot last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, is that we trust our Father in heaven. As we're looking to trust God, we have to trust Him as our Father. I think we put it in your bulletin, your upside-down bulletin, uh, that it is uh, the foundation uh, of prayer. We have this little house of prayer we went over last week. You can listen to that on our website. And the foundation is the fatherhood of God. As we look today on how to ask God for stuff, it's all based on this idea that He's our Father, that He's good, that He loves us, that He's in control. Because if God is a boss that we have to earn approval, if he's an army general where we just get commands, then that's going to shape the way we ask God for stuff away from the way that Jesus calls us to ask God for stuff. So the foundation is trust God as our Father. The second question we're going to look at today is why do we ask God for stuff? The answer is because we trust that he is good and in control. The reason why we trust God for stuff, why we ask God for stuff, is because we trust that he's good and that he's in control. The act of asking God for stuff is an act of trust, just fundamentally. 
But if we're, we're honest, there's some confusing aspects to prayer, specifically in the, in the realm of asking God for stuff. Because even what Jesus says right, right before that Carrie read, your father already knows what you need before you ask. But then right after that, he says, ask God for stuff. So clearly there's something going on. Clearly there's some, some nuance or some, some complexity to prayer. But if he already knows, why do we ask? Well, we pray because it shapes our hearts to trust that God is good and that he's in control, that he can shape the world. If God was not good, then we'd be, we should be terrified and probably best just to try on our own if he was this fickle, temperamental, sometimes good, sometimes bad kind of deity. And if he's not in control, what are we doing? It's the point of, you can come up and ask me for a million dollars all you want, but it's just not going to do it because I don't have that power. So let's look, look at me at our sermon text, starting in verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So this is the wax on, wax off of prayer. When we come to pray, we come to speak to our Father We ask for his name to be famous, to be hallowed, to be valued, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And again, the reason why Jesus calls us to pray, the reason why we ask God for this stuff, for his name to be famous, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, is because it shapes our hearts to trust him more. We pray our theology. If you've been around church for a while, you might know, yes, God's kingdom must come. But when we pray and we bring that into the context of our real lives, that is when our hearts begin to be shaped and trust. God's kingdom to come is, is, when we pray this, it's a chance to meditate on the truth that one day God will fully institute his kingdom. His kingdom is already come in part through the Holy Spirit and his church, but someday it will be fully manifested and all things will be made new. So all of us who are in Christ, we will live in God's kingdom, which means in his presence. Scripture says there will be no sun, because God himself, as our Father, will be our light. And this is true. This is just objectively, in Scripture, true. And so Jesus calls us to pray that this will happen, this would happen, this would be true. Father, may your kingdom come. This inevitable reality, would it come? Why does Jesus call us to pray for the inevitable? And it's because all of us struggle to live like this is true. All of us struggle to believe in the midst of all the brokenness and pain and hurt that we engage with every day, that these temporary momentary afflictions can't be compared with the coming glory. We all struggle to believe that truth. Scripture says all our suffering, all the brokenness, these afflictions can't be compared. They're they're a vapor. They're a mist. But in the midst of them, they put blinders on. And Jesus calls us to pray in such a way that we look up out of the brokenness and see God's kingdom. This is an opportunity to lament. When you pray, Father, your kingdom, gum, kingdom come, you can be honest that you hate the fact that every day babies are being aborted and 
every day. Children who have been born are being neglected and abused. You can feel the weight of that. And know that in the renewal of all things, God will make that all right. That, that will not be the case. And so we plead with God, your kingdom come. This shapes our hearts to hope in Christ. Instead of be bitter when we face brokenness. It can be so easy to fall into the trap of bitterness when we uh, see broken systems and just the, the force of evil in our community. And Jesus calls us to pray this way, to shape our hearts to trust him and have hope instead of cynicism. Next, we pray for God's will to be done, which is another inevitability. Isaiah 46, 10 says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Praise God for this verse. So if God's word shall stand, and he will accomplish everything that he sets out to do, why would Jesus call us to pray, Your will be done? Again, to shape our hearts that he's good and that he's in control. So when we pray this, we're praying the theology that we know Isaiah 46 is true, that he will accomplish all his purposes. But then in our own lives, how can we build on this structure? Father, you are good and in control. I know that your will would be done. I know that you are good, so I want it to be done, even if I don't understand it. So we look at things in our life that we don't like, things that just seem so incredibly wrong, things that we would pick to be different, we come to God, pray for his will to be done, and trust that he's good and that he's in control. So we wax on, wax off, your kingdom come. The not yet part of God's kingdom will be fully realized and everything renewed, and our hearts will be shaped to hope for that. And then we paint the fence, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven shaping our hearts, our instincts to dwell on a trust that God is good, that he will accomplish all his purposes, that we can see in the cross, in Jesus being killed, murdered, that even in the darkest moments, he brings about redemption. We meditate on these sweet inevitabilities and they, they shape how we experience our own lives. And I think, again, I think these two prayers, they play out best in suffering. They shape our hearts to trust our Father in times when we're in pain, when it's just not going the way we want. And Jesus calls us to, to run to our Father in those times. Now there is a second reason why we ask God for stuff. His kingdom come, His will be done. These are inevitable. They're immovable, biblical truths. But another immovable biblical truth is that somehow, and some, to some degree, our prayers move God's hands. This is so staggering. Our prayers shape our hearts, and they also shape the world. This is just a mind-blowing reality, a mind-blowing tension that we have in Scripture. James 5 summarizes an Old Testament story for us. Look what James 5 says in 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, 
and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James is giving us this real punchy two-sentence recap of what happens in 1 Kings 17. To some degree, God put the weather under the control of Elijah's prayers. And I do things with people in the community uh, about events that are going to be outside. They always look at me as the pastor and like, can you work on the weather, Josh? And I always joke, like, that's not how it works, but it kind of is to some degree. Not that I have, like, total control over that. Makes me uncomfortable. But always in the ultimate sense, God is in control. This is something we want our hearts to trust in. He's not like, man, I really don't want to do this rain thing, but Elijah prayed, so here we go. But we also see that the weather responded to Elijah's prayer within God's control. This is what scholars call a practical mystery. Our prayers cannot take away God's control from any part of the universe. And yet part of God's goodness is that he allows the world to be shaped by our prayers. Our prayers are powerful. They shape our hearts, and they shape the world. God is in control, yet our prayers have the power to change things. These two truths are just undeniably in Scripture. It's a beautiful and practical mystery. And the danger, if you're like me, the danger is trying to figure out how. Or when we can't answer the question how, is just to jump ship on the entire mystery. But it is a mystery. And Scripture has not articulated how it works, just that it does work. Look what James says in James 4, 2 through 3. You do not have because you do not ask. This is the first part. And yet God's will and his perfect plan is flawless. So you don't have because you don't ask, but then God's will is flawless. Again, how this works is a mystery. And so as a pastor, I'm just not going to explain things that Scripture doesn't explain. But if we think about God's design, it is a mystery and it is very practical because if we believe that God was in charge and nothing that we pray or do matters, then we become passive and depressed fatalists. But on the other hand, if we believe <clears throat> that our actions can completely undermine or flip God's purposes on their head, then we should be terrified. We should be paralyzed from praying. Because what do we know, really? It's like handling a five-year-old, a genie in a bottle. Like if you don't watch out, your house will be made of cotton candy or something. But if both are true, then we have a great, a great incentive to be diligent in our prayer and our effort to see God's kingdom come and will be done. And then we have deep peace that he's in control, that nothing we do or pray can thwart or mess up his purposes. And even within this practical mystery, we can see that the root of it is trust. Can we trust that he's good, that he's in control, that our prayer shapes our hearts and it can shape the world? So if this is true, if prayer is this powerful thing, how do we do it? How do we ask God for stuff? By trusting that he knows everything and that he loves us. We ask God for stuff, but trusting that he knows everything and that he loves us. This type of trust, these two, two parts of trust, 
It keeps us from two errors that we often have when it comes to prayer, which, are being, which is being either too arrogant or too timid. It's been an exciting but a little bit exhausting week studying just what it looks like to ask God for stuff because Scripture's teaching on this is just so fascinating and complicated, but really beautiful. We trust that God knows everything, He's all-knowing, and that He loves us. And you'll notice that we are about halfway through the Lord's Prayer before we start asking for stuff for us. The first whole half of the prayer is you, your name be hallowed, your will be done, your kingdom come. So prayer starts with God shaping our hearts and our passions, our desires to align with His, and to see that our deepest longings of our heart will be found in His kingdom and His will. It's always helpful for me to look at what Christians have been saying about prayer for a very long time. The Westminster Shorter Catechism which is just a series of questions that seeks to really simply outline and define all the elements of the Christian faith. I think it helps us here. It's very loaded. Look at question 98. I think it's on the slide. Question is, what is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Man, you could do a whole series just on that. But what we see, and I think this is helpful, is that prayer is an offering up of our desires agreeable to his will. Tim Keller summarizes it like this. We are to ask God for things that fulfill both our desires and his will in wisdom. Look at the rest of that verse from, from James 4. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I call this the don't pray for a Lamborghini verse. Let me read it again. First, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Very fascinating language here. Passions is an interesting choice of words there. Because it shows us that prayer is deeply connected to our hearts with what we're passionate about, with what we really want, with what we long for. James is saying what we pray for comes from our hearts. And the whole point of the first half, the, the, the submitting to God's will and desiring his name and kingdom to, to come and spread is part of shaping our hearts and our desires. Ultimately, within that, we are submitting to God's all-knowing love. The error of being too arrogant or too bold or whatever you want to say about asking God for stuff can, is a breakdown of knowing that God is all-knowing, that He is God and we are not, that He knows more than we do. Going back to your kid with a genie in a bottle, the cotton candy house is a terrible idea. Sometimes kids treat parents like a genie in a bottle, but you say no, why? Because you know more than them. And you desire their good. As a parent, you have love for your child, delight to give them good things, but your love is shaped by a knowledge of how the world works and how children thrive. 
It's just so easy to reduce God to a genie in the sky where he is a means to get what we want rather than what we want. It's so sneaky because this is for sure a problem in, in the church. It's for sure a problem in pastoral life because we can pray all these spiritual-sounding prayers for good things from passions that are not in line with God's will. Because we can pray for success, for the glory of God. Let me be successful so that I can be on the podium of the Super Bowl as a champion and say, glory be to God. When really what we want is our own glory. We can even pray for folks to get saved, for lost people to come to know Jesus from a place where we want to feel significant or we want to feel effective. We can pray for our kids in such a way that we're really coming from the passion of people being impressed with their parenting. Please help my kids behave so that people can be impressed with us. Do you see how we can, these are good prayers that we should pray. But the point here is our, is our heart and our passions, knowing that God is all-knowing. The arrogant side of prayer doesn't trust that God is all-knowing, and so it's a it's not a prayer to a good, in-control, all-knowing, all-loving Father. It's a prayer to a wish-granter in the sky who exists to serve you and get you what you want and what you think is best. And that's a tragedy. That's not human flourishing. Because what you really want, what Scripture says we all really want as humans is to live life in a deeply trusting relationship with the God of the universe. So if God were to say yes to some of these prayers and give us his stuff instead of himself, that wouldn't actually be loving. For him to give us toys that would take us away from him rather than drawing us into a deeper, sweeter trust with him isn't loving. The Bible actually says that's wrath. He gives us up to our stuff. So we ask, how do we ask? By trusting that he knows everything, trusting that he loves us, and so we submit and depend on him as our father. And this isn't just tacking your will be done, just praying for everything down a huge long list, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done. It's really communicating with him, sharing the passions of your heart. J.R. Packer was a great scholar. I heard a rumor once that he memorized the whole New Testament in Greek. So that can be done, I guess. He suggests that when we get to this asking God for stuff part of prayer, the petition, that we ask God for stuff, we say your will be done, and then we communicate why we think that is best. We share our reasoning with him. And I think this is one of the mercies of God where we have to really articulate why it is we want something and it can kind of reveal our hearts. So for example, this is totally an example. You could come up with lots of different examples. Father, I feel so worthless in my job. Will you help me get a better job? That's not true. I love my job. This is an example. Hopefully, at some point in praying, I want another job. I feel so worthless. I'm depressed. I hate my job. At some point, we were praying this, you begin to think, what might the gospel say about my worth? 
and its connection to my job. We, we might begin to see, you know, I, what I really want is my job to make me feel significant and important and effective. So what does it mean that the, the gospel says I'm significant because the God of the universe died for me and saved me into the family of God? And so as you're praying for a job, which is okay to pray for another job, it's okay to want a better job, you explain why you want a new one, you begin to see the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for you in the gospel in a whole new light. How if God were to say yes and just give you a job that tickles your desire for significance and you are incredible and shoot to the top of your career, but you don't have God, God doesn't go with you, have you really won? So in praying, our hearts are shaped to trust that he's good. I know you're good. Can I see that in the gospel? And so now, in praying this prayer for a different job, our hearts can be shaped to where we're living more immovably, more secure, more trusting in the significance we have in Jesus. So God might not answer your prayer for a job, but in praying, he might answer the prayer you didn't even know to ask which is help me believe that I'm significant in the gospel, that I'm important in the gospel. This is the difference between being a demanding magic lamp customer and being a trusting child who will plead with his father for what he wants and explain why, but then trust his father's all-knowing love. So that's one side. How do we ask God? Not arrogantly. We, we ask him trusting that knowing that he knows more than us. Just that's a foundational assumption. He's our father. He knows more than us. And so there's some humility there. Now, the other side, which I would say, if you had to ask me to pick one side that we struggle with the most here at First Baptist, this is probably what we struggle with, which is the too timid side. Because there are churches that might lean towards the arrogant side, you know, the name it and claim it. I prayed for it. I named it. It's going to happen. Waiting for my Lamborghini. I don't see a lot of us doing that here. I think most of us, we're pretty silent about most of the stuff in our lives because we value independence. And we just kind of want to leave God alone unless we really, really need him. So when there's cancer, surgery coming up, we lost a job, something extreme, then, you know, then we'll pray. But with a colicky baby, with tensions in our marriage, with the pain of growing old and losing loved ones, or chronic illness that we're struggling with. We just need to buckle up and handle it. But as, as James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And Jesus really kind of one-ups one James. Look how, G, J, look how Jesus articulates this in Luke 11, starting in verse 5. This is a parable he told. Jesus said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. 
and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If human fathers, in all our limits, in all our brokenness, in all our messed upness, can give good things to our kids, what is an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God able to do? And the words that Jesus uses here are just staggering. He says impudence, a shameless persistence. Hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad. Just repeatedly, a shameless persistence. The friend knocking on the door doesn't stop. It's a boldness, a confidence that drives his request forward. And this is to a limited, tired human friend. But we have a Father God who is never tired, who knows no lack, no limits. So being too timid stems from a relational breakdown where we just don't really trust that God loves us, that he's for us. We know he forgives us. We prayed the prayer. We get our our get-out-of-hell-free card. But then we just want to leave him alone and not cause, cause any problems. But Jesus says it's the needy, the impudent, the shamelessly persistent children who entered the kingdom of God. Spiritual neediness rather than self-sufficiency is the mark of mature Christians. This is the upside-down kingdom of God. So the application for us this week is two things. Ask and receive. Ask and receive. So there was a night this past week, and it really, I feel like I talk about this a lot, and it's, and it's okay. It's hard but it's okay. Johnny isn't sleeping super good. He did some good nights this past week, but this particular night wasn't super great. We had a hard day. Camille and I got in a fight. He didn't take good naps. And so we're just, we're in bed. We're praying. And I was praying, Father, please help Johnny sleep. We don't have much to offer him tonight. And I kid you not, right when I was praying that, guess who started crying? (laughs) What? On the week that I'm going to preach on asking God for stuff. It's just amazing. Very profound. So the asking happened. Make your request known to God. Then we receive what he says. We ask and then we receive. And to that one, he said no. And so I receive from God that in his love, in his all-knowingness, in his perfect knowledge, his fatherly goodness is that he wanted me to get up and go comfort my son. So you ask and then you receive. There's the boldness there to ask for something specific. Help, Johnny, sleep, please. But this receiving part and growing and trusting that he's good and that what he sends my way is for my flourishing takes away the awkwardness of praying for specific prayers. Do you ever feel hesitant to pray for something specific? because then you really know if it was answered or not. We receive them when they come, whether it's a yes or a no, trusting that our Father knows us and He loves us 
He's not withholding any good thing. So ask and receive. What will you pray for this week? Let's pray for impossible things, exciting things, big things. Let's wait and trust our Father and see what He does. Because lastly, look at the key to asking God for stuff. I'm just going to read this and then I'm going to pray. This is the key into the house of prayer. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Father, I praise you for your, your glorious truth that you revealed to us. And in your glory and majesty, you call us to call you Father, to ask you for stuff. And I thank you, Father, that you You don't call us to ask you for stuff without the most incredible display that you want to give us good things and giving us your son, sending him to die so that we can know you. I pray that the cross would give us confidence to ask you for stuff. I pray that the cross would humble us and know that it is by grace we are your children and that you have saved us and you are our father and you know more than we do. Father, I pray for just the joy and the freedom of asking and receiving. The freedom of boldly, with impudence, with shamelessness, asking you for stuff. And then with childlike trust, we receive the answer when it comes. Would that free us to be with you in our suffering, be with you in things that aren't going the way we would pick. Would you align our hearts with you, with yours, Would you draw us deeper into the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we sing our final song together, I'd like to sing another song. It's in your hymnals if you want to turn and follow along on page 803.